Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 88 of the Drunken UX Podcast, when we're going to be talking about how to create baby's first UX research plan, whether you are a team of one or a team of a team. Uh, I am your host, the bearded wonder, Sir Magnificent Beardy McBearderson, (laughs) he who shall not be shaved. (laughs) I am the host with the most gray in his beard, Michael Feenan. I'm your other host, also known as I wonder where his beard is and why isn't he shaving that already? Um, And that doesn't look like facial hair, Uh, Aaron. How, how are gratefully, you? he who remembered pants. Unfortunately, my my, I mean, pin, my pin tweet right now is actually I hate wearing pants, which is a fact. That's actually a very nice. Uh, I wish I had planned that better, but uh, <laughs> no, that's uh, I, I'm going to take credit for that either way. <laughs> Folks, if you're enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, you can go check us out on Twitter or Facebook at slash Drunken UX. If you are on Instagram, we are at slash Drunken UX podcast. And you can always come chat with us anytime at drunkenux.com slash discord. And that will get you an invite right into our lovely chatty channel thing. Uh, the fancy IRC is is really all we're, <laughs> all we're talking about this afternoon, evening, and morning with a bottle of something very new for me. It's Royal Salute 21. It is a blended Chivas Regal uh specialty that is in honor of the 21 gun salute they've been making it since 1953 this is the signature blend they've got three or four different bottlings they do of this in different fashions Hmm. um this is real nice like it's a i'm not like the biggest chivas fan in the world but Mm -hmm. whatever like as a 21 year blend that means everything in it is at least 21 years old if not more and i gotta give them credit i don't know what exactly it's blended from um region wise but it's light, it's fruity. Um, it's It's got a very like delicate sweetness to it that's very nice. Um, it takes a little bit of ice very well. Um, I'm, I'm very glad with this. And the bottle is, I, I'm a big fan of like scotch and good bottles. The, the bottle is because this, beautiful. This is a yeah. keep bottle. Like once I'm done with this, this bottle is going on a shelf because it's like a, one of those like blue earthenware, um, English, what are the English China? Um, mm. Whatever the name, of, I should know what the name of that stuff is, but I don't. So that's what I'm having this evening. And Aaron, I would love to know what I my have. Friend... Oh, I've got the uh, Balvenie American Oak. Um, I had it I'm a about while to say, ago. That's that's not the Caribbean cask. No, no, it's it's nice. Um, it's a nice smooth blend. It's got like a little bit of like spice. I don't want to call it cinnamony, but American Oak is a little sharper. Yeah. Little little bit because you you get that like fresh that that new oak flavor off of yeah. it a little little harsher yeah it's 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 really I don't I don't have the the alcohol vocabulary to describe it correctly but it's the experience is less of like a like a burning feeling and but it's got like some some te- texture to the flavor kind of like when you it, it, I guess the oak. The woody kind of oak flavored uh, smell to it is similar to like smelling like a fresh cedar plank of wood or something. Like it's yeah. that same kind of um, earthy. Yeah, see, you're getting there. I'm I'm training you well. I feel <laughs> very good about that. I no, I'm uh, just making shit up, man. I don't know what the hell I'm saying. 
we need some training on the subject as well because we don't let Aaron out to talk with users ever. Uh, he's he lives in his uh, in his cubicle there. I think I, on the other hand, I'm you're just saying me. that you're not letting me out. I think that it's that I don't want to come out and talk to users. Well, give me credit for having some power in this uh, dy- in this relationship dynamic a little bit. On the other microphone, we have from the stunning metropolis of Minneapolis, Varun Murugason is joining us to talk about UX research he is the head of research at apple and banana previously he has worked in user experience at both best buy and facebook apple and banana is a ux brand who is growing a library of resources with two main goals in mind they're trying a to not dumb down research for people but also make that research accessible for everyone varun thanks for joining us this evening i know you've got a can over there that i saw and now i don't remember what was printed on said can except that it's a Porter? You are close, but no cigar. Vanna White, do not press that letter uh, for this man here. Earth Rider <laughs> Brewery, North Tower Stout. Excited mm, to be stout. here. I know uh, because of COVID, no one has been able to go out and get talk to anybody. So this is a great way to get a little <laughs> beer in, get a little conversation, and excited to chat with you guys and really take that baby's first step into UX research. <laughs> it's funny because we were talking about this before the show that, like, it's while we do try to like bring data and stuff into our, our chats and everything, we haven't talked specifically about UX research since Annie Lynn was on back in the fifties, episode fifties, late forties, somewhere around I thought there. Thought you meant the nineteen fifties. No, no, like, uh, <laughs> I know I have a lot of gray in my beard, but not quite that much. Uh, in sixty so, plus years, you've only done eighty eight episodes. I don't episode fifty six. 56. See, that's uh, my my uh, show researcher is Aaron. So he's always on, <laughs> on tap to, to find that. The guy in the chair. It's one of the many jobs I perform here. So we're talking about this idea of how, how do you bring in UX research into your work and doing it from this idea that UX researcher is a role. UX researcher is like a thing you can do, a thing you can specialize in. People pay me, yeah. People, yeah, there are there are actually companies out there that will pay you to go out and, and do this, but a lot of places don't have that. They don't have that dynamic or complexity to even distinguish sometimes between developers and designers at all. Um, and so we're going to talk about this from sort of the level of where your responsibility lies as somebody who deals in web. Are you a dev? Are you a designer? Are you an accessibility person? Are you a usability person? Um, you know, all of these roles touch UX in different ways. Um, and though I, I say frequently, like anybody who builds things for the web has a responsibility to UX. Um, Quinton Carlson has written over in an article on Medium. He says, often various factions inside technology companies divide and silo user experience responsibility, shouldering it entirely on the product and design teams. However, the best technology companies have a shared responsibility for their user experience. It's all right to have people who are UX pros, uh, whether that's a UX designer, UX researcher, whatever, UX tester. But the reality is UX is a responsibility of of all of our work. At least that's the way I have approached it. Um, You know, when we were developing websites, you know, 15 years ago, UX wasn't a field. Like, I don't think, I don't remember having those conversations with people. It was like when content strategy was kind of coming out of the woodwork back then. I'm going to add to that. Uh, it's kind of like 
you couldn't have autism in like the 1800s because that wasn't a thing that we labeled, yeah. right? People were thinking about user experience even early on, right? Putting a button in a place where you could click it or even notice it. We just didn't maybe have that title as user experience up until later. So to me, that dynamic, that shift, kids get now get uh, diagnosed with autism, but maybe in the 1800s, 1500s, you didn't have that thing. So we just kind of labeled them with something else. So refining we we refine refine our industry i don't know when ux became or or rather if you're ever designing anything whether it's software or hardware or a shovel or a car or anything at all where a human has to interact with it i i can't imagine not considering the context of a human using it whatever it is that you're making although i've clearly seen products where that was not a consideration but like I think kind of in mind what you were both saying, like there there's like UX professionals who are like really up on all the research that we're gonna probably learn about tonight. Um and then there's just like general consideration of like hey, UX is important, maybe you should be aware of it and consider the context of whatever it is you're creating. There's like a wealth of information here that we <laughs> aren't tapping into. It's that wealth of information though. That's what actually stops a lot of this from getting out. And I think about this as a researcher now, good research, if you do it well, is proprietary knowledge. It gives you a cutting edge. So if you're giving out this information, you actually give them a leg up in that Hmm. sense. So you don't see a lot of this evolution because it is sitting at the desk, long nights, dark rooms, kind of just sitting with the data. And then Eureka, if you put enough time to it, you get a little breakthrough moment, then your VP takes it. And then you're like, this is product strategy. This is important. (laughs) We're going to develop and design a whole new innovation a differentiation out of this, but that does not get out. Or if it does get out, a lot of UX people talk about, why would you just copy paste it? You don't know what led to this finding or this design. So you don't want to just absorb and copy paste the good alongside the bad. So talk to me a little bit, you know, when we talk about UX research, especially I, I think as an industry, the the workers, the people like us doing development, doing design, understand abstractly what ux research can uncover but if if i'm a stakeholder coming in if i'm somebody you know if if i'm a c-level or a marketing person that's just wanting to get some work done and my designer says hey can we stop and and maybe test some of this stuff can we stop and and get some users lined up and, and run them through a script what is it ux research is really designed to tell people Thing, what it's designed to tell you is specifically geared around the questions that you ask. That's a more esoteric type answer. But at the, what I tell the stakeholders, all the way up to the C-suite, all the way down to a designer that needs to maybe pixel push, is good research does two things. Number one, it helps you identify bad ideas early mm. on in the process. And then number two, it helps you kill bad ideas faster. A lot of research, uh, at least at scale, is around testing, right? Usability testing, test it, test it put it in front of somebody, see what they do. That's a great way to kill bad ideas. But if you think about it that way, you've spent all of this time maybe running down the wrong road. You've built all these prototypes. Maybe you have a new designer developer that fell in love with that kind of bad design. And then you come out and you test it and you find out that zero out of 15 people can use it and negative one out of 15 people actually found it uh, reasonable or valuable, right? You can kill bad ideas. But earlier on, Good research is about finding and identifying bad ideas as early as possible. 
Mm. One of the things I tell stakeholders is if you do good research early on, it starts to become part of the company's folklore. What is true about the people that you're building for? So you start to recognize if you're trying to build, if your company builds products for people that have difficulties with vision, you probably wouldn't try to sell them 3D glasses, right? If you had done Mm. a little bit of research early on, maybe they're much more interested in premium wireless audio for a really immersive movie type sound. That might be something that you learn earlier on, and you need to stop your entire production around um, 3D glasses. That's a very archaic example. But if you do research early, you start to recognize that these are the directions that you don't want to go. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should be moving forward in this direction. That's where people like developers, designers, other smart people in the room can recognize to align our business strategy and the people that we're trying to help for these are some possible ways. Let's go ahead and build something. Let's test it. Let's see if we can iterate from there. I, related to that, I like this idea of defining kind of the story of your users. Do you do you find that you ever, like in marketing, they'll have like marketing persona. Do you find that you ever kind of develop these like um, anthropomorphized ideas or concepts of who your users are, like giving them names and everything and identities? To me, not the necessarily the best way to go about it, okay. simply because people have different needs and there's so many contexts. There's different contexts that you'd want to keep in mind. And I think persona is what has happened, and I've seen it happen, is it gets easy to say, well, we've got a persona. Why mm. the heck do we want to test it? What do we gain from it? We spent all this time and money to make a nice little chart. Look at, look at Chad. He makes $30,000 a year. He drives a Subaru, and he's got pink hair. And then I think about, does that actually help you make a decision? If you Hmm. need to know if the menu should be left or right, does that help you figure out what your go-to-market strategy is? Does it really? Short answer is no. Long answer is it gets you actually further away from the people you're building for because any sort of research, if you talk to any researcher on the planet, they'll eventually come to an idea that I call shelf life. Personas have a very short shelf life simply Hmm. because everything around everybody changes all the time. You actually spend more energy and time to build a reasonable persona. Then you spend maybe two weeks coming up with fun names, Chad, Timothy, (laughs) Brad Butterknife, Susie Salad Fork. And by the time you actually want to use it to make decisions, that persona is outdated. Hmm. Whereas if you did shorter, maybe frequent qualitative studies and actually get out into the field and watch people use what you're building, that knowledge consistently just refreshes, right? So personas, there is, it is split. I've seen some people do them well. I lean in the camp of that's not necessarily the best way to do it. You don't necessarily want to abstract people. Mm -hmm. If you can get closer to the nitty gritty, to the details, that's where the best learnings come from. Because then your stakeholders like, why can't he click the button? (laughs) Okay, I see that, right? That's where the empathy comes. That's where the really fun part of research comes is being wrong and being excited about being wrong. Um, Aaron, this is your chance to uh, say the line. Okay, keep your personas close and your users closer. Yeah, yes, exactly. My thing, and this goes back like to my college days of building websites in the early aughts. I I had this way of thinking about websites that was at the end of the day, every website you ever build or or work on or design for, whatever the case is, is the result of somebody building something to communicate to another human being. And so every server, every network switch that's in the way, every piece of HTML code and JavaScript library is noise that is in the way of that conversation. 
And so the more you can get in touch with those users and try to short circuit some of that static is going to serve you well in building something that they can use. The further away you hold them, the farther away they are from the code you're writing and, and the layouts and UIs you're designing, the worse your stuff's going to be because you're not getting that data. You're not generating the information to help you make good decisions. You're working entirely on instinct. And most of us, don't have great instincts, not at the end of the day. Like, If I can add one thing to that, though, what I've seen happen is if the more you invest in personas, we're talking all the way, the whole nine yards, mm -hmm. you're making posters, you're communicating them effectively. When you're making decisions, you're asking yourself, what would Susie Salad Fork do in this during this moment? It becomes easier to not try other kinds of research. You actually mm. it become sticky and people become less more resistant to change, right? Because somebody sold somebody to make personas. And yeah. now you're saying that might be outdated. Maybe this is the wrong way to do it. And then what happens with personas that if your product changes fundamentally, you do it in the startup space, the pivot, your persona probably doesn't capture the data, the variables that you really now, you now need. We're not making wheelchairs, we're making skateboards. Well, now mm -hmm. it's a different entire set of demographics and people you'd want to understand. So it's the selling of personas that can be challenging as well. So the big, it sounds like what you're saying is that the, the drawback of personas for UX is that it results in too much fixation and too much uh, maybe stagnancy. And it's, it's not that it's not helpful, mm -hmm. but when it comes down to it, I have never seen, uh, I'm not a thousand years old, so I can't say I've been doing this for that long, but I've <laughs> never seen a designer say, yeah, we should go this direction or that direction and then be able to attribute it back to a persona. Mm -hmm. What I have seen is people say, well, we ran some survey research. We learned X, Y, and Z. Yeah. That's why we went this way. Or we did some mm -hmm. interviews. And that one quote really put everything. A cool part of research is the outlier or the anomaly, as we sometimes call it, which is a weird way of thinking about people. But that thing that stands out might be the one quote or the one moment that puts everything else into perspective, right? Of course, he said this. Boom. Everything else becomes a little bit more clear. A persona, by definition, is a generalization. It is supposed to take a bunch of variants and then abstract it down into something clean, something simple. Everybody has the same variables, right? Age, gender, what type of car you drive or how proficient you are with technology. You miss out on the variability. You miss out and you reduce the dimensionality and complexity people have. And it's like, mm, I don't know. Like fundamentally what I think about, and at least what we think about Apple and Banana is, is any of this data legitimately going to steer us in the right direction or make it easy for us to identify bad directions? And more often than not, we measure very few things. And we have found through trial and iteration, the less you measure and the more confident we are in what we're measuring, we make better decisions. Hmm. Let's talk about that. So I started this whole thing out by saying, you know, I understand that most web people is a general industrial term workplaces that probably only have one, two, or maybe three people running their web team, so to speak. Most of those are probably armies of one. Um, you know, if, if you are lucky enough to work somewhere with like a genuine team or teams of teams, that's really the rarity though. Of course, places like Facebook certainly uh, hire swaths and swaths of those people, but the, the country is a big place. The world is a big place. Um, so let's get into from here just a, a little bit about, okay, I don't have anybody in a UX role. 
and I'll buy into this idea that I'm building something for people and I would like to build the right thing for people and convince folks or, or maybe I know um, one of my favorite things in the world is when I get asked to make a carousel for something. And my favorite <laughs> thing in the world is to say no, <laughs> because they're terrible. And so, it, but, but I have all the, the way I can do that is I have all the data that says users hate these things. They don't use them. They don't convert. They don't do anything you think they do. How do we go about building that initial case to say, okay, let's slow down to speed up. We're going to slow down. We're going to research a couple things. We're going to run some tests. We're going to write some scripts, sit down with some of these users and figure out what we want to do. Where, where is the starting point for somebody on that? And how do you approach this subject without coming across as the person who says no to everything? Because that's a real consequence sometimes because there are a lot of, there are a lot of bad ideas. <laughs> there are a lot of bad <laughs> ideas that will come across the desk. And so that's, that's something I think people get concerned about is I don't want folks to feel like they can't come to me with suggestions because they feel like I'm going to shoot it down every time. I don't necessarily tell you that it's a bad idea. It's the person that you're building for. If you have launched something, so a great place to start this conversation, especially if, they, if you've never done research, is go to your stakeholder, the person that you really want to champion and challenge them to do research, is ask them, when's the last time you got something wrong? There's not a single per stakeholder on this planet that has been 100% accurate in their predictions. There is some idea that they had in the shower on the way here uh, in the uh, in the fruit aisle at Whole Foods that they're like, Eureka, I got it. And they wanted to go put that out into the world. And their entire market said no. Right. That will sting. That will sit with you in that moment. Let's draw on those emotions. Let's be uncomfortable together. Let's go out and do a little bit of interview. And a great way to then pivot on top of that is what do we not want to be wrong about moving forward? that it's okay being wrong. And that's where a lot of innovation, product uh, differentiation can happen because you challenge your assumptions and you went out and said, hey, maybe the thing that we're building isn't for us and it's for somebody else. And then that's where a lot of exploration and cool things can start to happen. One of my favorite things, especially with senior stakeholders, the people that are the most resistant, right? The stubborn stegosaurus in the room as a stakeholder. <laughs> one of my favorite ways to pitch research even before is I sit down and we have a frank conversation and I say, here's what's going to happen with research. And typically you don't want to predict what's going to happen with research because if you know what's going to happen, why go out and research it, right? Go get some new knowledge that can change the way. But here's what I say. Two things are going to happen as a result of this research. Number one, you're going to be right. You have amazing product intuition. That's got to feel so good that you have a pulse on the people that we're trying to build for. You are seeing something in these metrics in this industry that nobody else is, hot damn, that's got to feel amazing to be right. Or the second thing is you're going to get smarter. You're going to be able to avoid mm. obstacles. You're going to be able to duck, dip, dive, duck, dive, and dodge or whatever it is. Dodge, dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. All over some of those issues. And that's got to feel good too. Because then when you go out and you talk to your leader and you're telling them, here's the vision around it, you know 10 different things. And you can say, hey, there's actually a path to product success within here. It's a little trite of me to to say this idea that, you know, the only failure is a failure you, you know, don't learn from, so to speak. But and I don't know is if this is one of those made up quotes or not. Right. But ever, that this quote that's attributed to Edison about, you know, uh, the reporter that asked him about the thousand ways he failed to make a light bulb. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he he said, uh, you know, that I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention of a thousand steps. Like mm. it's it's that idea that any progress has to come from data and learning and and this exercise, so to speak. All of this are muscles for us, and sometimes we try crazy things as part of that. And sometimes we try crazy things that we know won't work because we want to learn why they don't work and use that to apply to other things. Then, you know, building this body of knowledge of things that users don't do or users don't like is itself really valuable information that, and to the way we started this whole conversation about like how valuable proprietary information is and proprietary research. If you're the company that knows all the things that, people hate and can stay away from that that's incredibly powerful that's really really useful information for building your next you know killer feature whatever that may happen to be if you pull that thread even further it doesn't take a lot to figure out what people hate we all walk around saying i hate this i hate traffic i hate ads i hate paying for things we all know that it's much more difficult and i think that's where researchers and design designers start to intersect and really build powerful relationships is what do people like, right? Like, oh, I don't like that menu. It's too crowded. What level of menu can be crowded enough for you to find value, for it to be interesting, for it to be visually aesthetically pleasing, right? That's so much more difficult that I think good research and good design can come out to do. A lot of stakeholders, especially in research immature companies, where it's maybe somebody just trying a little bit of testing every now and then, a lot of stakeholders walk in and walk out of research sessions expecting, boom, this is what we're doing. This is the research. This is exactly what we're going to do. And it's guaranteed success. And I think it's fundamentally the wrong way of looking at it. It is a process of learning, the process of research that helps stakeholders make sense of the world around them and the people that they're building for. And then, then if you empower your stakeholders, your product people, your marketers, that's where they get the coolest ideas. The, uh, this all sounds like all of this stuff, like we're, we're discussing this as a way of like extracting value from your work and, and creating value from the products you build. And obviously this is like a very deep, very detailed well to get into. The reality is it doesn't have to be hard though. Like you can get a lot of value from very simple things in this discussion. Um, Tamir Sharon over at Smashing Magazine, and this was quite a few years back, wrote, you must be able to boil a UX research plan down to one page. Hmm. If you can't or won't, then you won't get buy-in for the research and its results. This is, I I love this quote because it speaks to this idea of powerful people want one page. They they don't want you to hand them a 30-page dissertation on why you need to do a thing. They, their time is valuable. Their time is money. They want you to make it simple. And so one page, explain why this research is valuable. And the reality is you can do that. It's very easy to write a basic research plan with a thesis, you know, a goal, a methodology, and, and a target for who you're going to go after. Um, I apply what we call SMART methodology when I think about this. It's mm-hmm. an acronym that means specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and timely. So is what you're going after a, like you want to learn a thing, not learn an amorphous. So like what I was just saying, like how much do people trust our website? I mean, you can kind of learn some of that, but you definitely can't get a number out of it by any means. It's not measurable. 
um, in that way. You can get feelings, you can get an emotional qualitative value. And for some places that is something worth measuring. But if you've got limited resources, limited target, maybe that's not measurable enough. If you think if you think about an e-commerce site, right, trust between sellers and within the platform, that's huge. You'd want to make sure that I can actually trust uh, this person out in Wyoming that's going to sell me this part, right? They have to build that into it. But going back to what you said, can we measure trust? My first question that I ask every stakeholder is, what happens when we wrap up the research? What's your game plan? Right? We measured trust. We got something. What are you going to do now? Yeah. If your answer is a big fat zero, then I'm better suited doing research on something else. Yeah. Something that lets you move the needle forward. There's a lot of good, interesting research questions. Um, would it be interesting to know that 99% of drunken UX podcast listeners love blue dinosaurs? Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Dude, how that did you know interesting. that? Oh. We didn't publish right? that. That's so interesting. It's so interesting. Here's a follow-up question. Is that going to fundamentally change how this podcast is run? I mean, probably. It, it might change my sticker design. You guys hesitated. Okay, you guys hesitated. That no. made me. No, made that, me that's bad. absolutely fair. That's we're gonna build, Mike. Michael, we have to build our entire. I'm gonna throw money at this. A whole thing's gonna be built on blue dinosaurs going forward. It's time to stop my redesign. I've got to. Yeah. I've got a new goal. Blue dinosaurs. Uh, that's where it's at. We should have done research. You should have called me out earlier. <sighs> but is it Damn actionable? It. Right? Can we do something with what we've learned? Well, obviously. Uh, Here's the thing. You could technically, yes, you could rebrand it to the Blue Dinosaur Drunken UX podcast, but that's a mouthful, and this is why we drink. That's neither here nor there. But here's what I think is interesting. If you worked at a toy manufacturer that made dinosaur toys, that 99% finding is incredibly powerful because you now know to increase production of Blue Dinosaur toys and maybe to understand the market that likes 99% uh, that likes Blue Dinosaurs. And it's proprietary. And 100%. Why is Hasbro pumping out blue dinosaurs? Maybe they did some great research. It's the context that matters, right? Keep coming back to context. I can do research on pretty much anything. Might not be the world's greatest research or the cheapest or the fastest. I can get you findings on pretty much anything. I can come up with something. Is that going to change how you do things here? Is that fundamentally going to change and help somebody that you're trying to help? If not, let's use our let's use our research resources much more appropriately. If you think about a typical study, and this I'm using the word typical very uh, abstractly, let's say it takes you three weeks to run a full study, like done really well, where it actually challenges and helps you build better and faster. The first week you figure out what you're gonna study, maybe you write down your interview questions and figure out who you wanna talk to. The next week, heads down. You're talking to participants, you're collecting quotes, you're just watching them interact with the product or whatever, maybe you start your analysis, Third and final week, wrap up your analysis and maybe make a short little PowerPoint or email report, whatever. Three weeks, start to finish, you present to your team. If you abstract that out, there's 52 weeks in a year. That means if it takes you three weeks to run a single study that's meaningful and valuable, you can only run 17 studies per year. That is assuming that you start and end the next study as soon as you're done with your yeah. presentation, you about face and you jump at the next one. That discounts holidays, that discounts sick days, that discounts your stakeholder taking off two weeks to go to Cancun, right? All of that. So, man, you boil that down, you probably have between 12 to 14 really good studies per year. And you're asking me to go understand if people like blue dinosaurs. When you frame it like that, you can start to recognize some questions, 
some studies we really want to run towards and some we're going to steer right clear. Um, the other two realistic is the goal that you want to get realistic. Like if somebody's coming in and saying, Hey, we want to test this thing because we think it's going to increase our conversions a hundred percent. No, it's not. I don't need the research to tell you that probably what you're applying to this is not going to double, you know, whatever it is, unless we're talking super low number numbers, like it's going to con- right. change from three conversions to six. Okay. You did well, it 50% baby. Yeah. Let's get beer. <laughs> and timely is, you know, a, can we learn it quickly enough to do something about it? So that goes back to this whole thing about like the real time dashboard and all of that. Like, can we learn something that we have time to do something about and can turn around before it's not useful anymore. A lot of initiatives, marketing initiatives and stuff are very time boxed or they're based around a release or they're based around something else that has a clock associated with it. And so knowing when even to research, we should be researching things not right before we're doing them sometimes. Plan ahead, get you know two, three months of lead time so that you have time to go out and check things before that process starts stakeholders one question every month and it is found i found it be successful at small companies and big companies it's what do you want to learn this month that you can use next month it sets everybody up to win it tells me that hey that survey we're going to use that next month to avoid or move faster on something else yeah usability testing is possibly the lowest rung on that because you can see no one can find it no one can click it it clearly didn't work on the network that's good but then you jump back into shelf life. The minute you change that button to red to blue, that research is outdated. You cannot use it, and nor should you, for additional kind of design and product development moving forward. If you did big scale strategic research on what does the future of remote healthcare look like, there's a good chance you're going to learn a ton that can influence a lot of years coming down the line. So. You and you mentioned something, and I think it was just offhand, but I want to use it to form a question, which is this idea of like, okay, maybe it takes you three weeks to do research. Realistically, like when when you're doing, let's let's just take you know like an average, very simple. Again, thinking about this idea from what kind of time do you find, or do you do you find like certain things take certain amount of time, and other things take this much time? How much time is reasonable for somebody to try to say, give me this to go find out something? Time is, I don't think, is the biggest constraint. I think it's finding people that are within your market that you're trying to understand. That is a bigger issue. So if you can find somebody that you want to be talking to, right, if you're building an app for skateboarders and you can find 10 skateboarders, go ahead and do it quickly. Do it early. Do it meet with me. Write down maybe some questions and think about how you're going to analyze that data and interpret it. That's great. If it takes you forever to find participants, then time becomes an issue. It's not about methods. It's not about surveys or quantitative versus qualitative. It's I have the most amazing set of questions and I have a big fat zero of people to talk to. So you're just sitting dead in the water. So even three hours of just talking to someone that you're trying to help can be meaningful. It doesn't have to be three months. Right? I think there's a big issue, especially from academic research, that you spend six months dwindling on one question. Whereas in real life, some of the studies I've done, I've ran an entire study in six hours. Why? Because I had enough support and I can find people that I needed to talk to very quickly. If you could talk to somebody this afternoon and you can use that data the next day, do that. Because you will learn 10,000 things really quickly. 
The second one, if you are in a corporate type environment, it's when you're looking at a requirement or some sort of user story. And then when you're going to actually write some code that you're finding yourself being in an ambiguous situation, what do they mean by that? I could do it this way or I could do it that way. That might be another way to talk to a handful of people to get more clarity. Not your stakeholder, but the person that you're building for. So time is one way of looking at it. But if you have a reliable way of getting in front of people, you can go so much faster. You can run way more studies than that 17 number per year. We've uh, talked about this in the past and, and side of this. Uh, Jacob Nielsen has this habit of, I say habit. He wrote an article two decades ago. Yeah, that he says you can do UX research with five people. Agree or disagree? I mean, I don't think it's binary. I think there's more abstract. This is how you know I'm a researcher. I'm not going to be like, <laughs> F, no. Uh, here's what I will say. I think that research is foundational. I think it is important. What he says, though, for that 80%, I think about in terms of effect size. In psychological research, we talk a lot about effect sizes, which is essentially the relationship between variables. For example, I would probably have to talk to maybe five, six people to figure out a relationship and a pretty strong one of height and weight, meaning the next person's height, I could probably use to estimate their weight pretty reliably, right? Because that's a very obvious pattern. But if I could only measure somebody's height and the uh, the number of lines on their palm, it's going to be very difficult for me to make any sort of prediction meaningfully. So when you're looking at the 80%, those people are probably going to capture your biggest issues. There's no back button. There's no save button. There's a save and a confirm button. Those kinds of issues. Whereas if you think about your power user, your new user, they're probably you're probably not going to find those more hidden issues, those smaller effect sizes with just five. That's fair. A lot of people ask me, how many people? How many people do I talk to? I don't know. Like, tell me more about what you're trying to do. Tell me more about who you're trying to help. Tell me about the product and what's important to the person. I think a lot of uh, those questions can change who you talk to and how quickly you can access some of those folks. So let's talk about like sizing this stuff, right? Because obviously it's easy to ask hard questions and it's very easy to realize that, oh, the thing I want to know is maybe much harder to get at than I think, or requires more time or people, resources, whatever. What about this idea of like, okay, so I've got the Drunken UX website. I'm in the middle of a redesign of this. Aaron and I are the only two guys working on it. I don't have a UX person. I don't have an accessibility person. I don't have a usability person. I have nothing else. And I'm thinking, you know, I want to I want to figure some stuff out about how people listen to podcasts. You know, I've got some data. I've got some rough data about, like, people don't use the website much to listen to podcasts. They use apps. But I don't know if that's because my site sucks or because people just don't use sites. What's how do I start thinking about like writing that test plan to get that specific measurable data? What would be like a good starting point? No, I'm, I, I swear I'm not asking for free consulting on this question. He's asking for free consulting. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you some free consulting. The first thing I'd ask you is figure out what are you willing to change? If you are a smaller team, you tend to have less bandwidth. If you're doing this on the side, you got a full time job, you got a wife and kids. And you got this uh, close-up magic that you really like to practice. What are you willing to change? Are you willing to change the type? Are you willing to change the layout? Are you willing to actually support an entire application and put that in the app store? So what is your kind of friction point? 
What is you going? What are you going to change? And then you can start to structure research. And then if you actually start to some people, and maybe you ask people at the end of this podcast, drop a link to a Calendly. Hey, sign up for 20 minutes uh, with the two hosts to get a little conversation going. Or one of the things that I like to think about is incentivizing and attracting different kind of people. Maybe they don't want to talk to you. Maybe they're introverts. Maybe they're developers and they love the content. But they don't want to go that deep in the conversation and schedule that time. Can you say, hey, send us a voice memo or a voicemail to this email and tell us about what is it like listening and asking some of those questions? There's numerous ways to collect that data. But at the end of the day, you still have to take action on it. So what are you willing to change within that data set? And that will change the way that you kind of structure your research. You'll ask less questions. If you're not going to change the name of the podcast, right? Would that be something you go out to study? Probably not. But if you are willing to optimize the landing page to be more seamless or get them to sign up for maybe a Patreon account or sign up for your email waitlist or whatever, maybe those are the questions questions that you're actually going to try to ask. So what are you going to change? And that will definitely influence what kind of questions you ask. Not the most best answer answer, but for free consulting, it's not, it's a good one. (laughs) Not going to complain. I'm going to take it. Um, I actually like the idea of like just throwing a thing out there and saying like, yeah, send us a voice memo. Just, yeah. I know you guys are busy. We're busy too. I I like that too. Use that at Best Buy. And what happened was, if I can add a little anecdote, a little little story time here. Yes, please. Pandemic happened and I pivoted onto a new team and my team is focusing on the in-home services. So how do we deliver? How do we install, repair, get things to you? And that was an entirely new team. And that was an entirely new context, right? In the home, in this truck, they're getting in there, they're stuck in traffic. And I was asked to kind of do some foundational research of like, how do we build a baseline of knowledge? How do we build on top of it? How do we validate some of the things that we know and some of the things that we know that just aren't true? And I was stuck with, how do I do field research in a remote only work environment? And employees are super fantastic and they're so they're so inundated with a whole lot of service calls. How do I get ahead of them and how do I not slow them down, right? Hey, take time to do an hour long interview. And so what I did was I took my Teams account because everyone now has a Teams account and I set up my call. Whenever you call me, it would go straight to voicemail. And I left exactly a three second message. This is Varun. Leave your message if you're an in-home agent. Bye. Hang up. And I just train them over time. Whenever you have an issue, whenever you just want to talk about your day, you want to tell me a small detail that someone might not see in one of those dashboards or one of those metrics, you would tell Varun. And Varun would sit there and listen to it. And what happened was in three days, I got over three hours worth of data of voice. And you would be surprised how much data, how much richness and how much detail someone can pack into a 30 second soundbite. And a lot of these employees are telling me that they were starting to some of them. One employee specifically was like, this is like therapy now. I'm excited (laughs) when there's an issue because I know I'm going to leave a voicemail about it right after. And that touched me. And my stakeholders, they were skeptical. They're like, voicemails, what What? What are you doing with voicemails? And I've showed them this data. I let them listen to it. I let them listen, see the transcripts. And I built this entire report out. And they're like, there's something here. So now I just always have my, uh, if you call me on Teams, set to go to voicemail. And I'm just ready for that kind of data. Which can show like blind spots too, right? With that opening there, that's a good way to find out about things that the, the unknown unknowns in the equation, right? The things that you don't know are problems that people are experiencing, but if you're not tuned into their networks or their channels, 
you may not be hearing those complaints uh, in in real time. Let me dial this down to like the the big question, the elephant in the room, sort of to wrap up on. And you you hit on this already. COVID is a frustration for all of us, and um, that also makes it hard to get people into a research lab, get people you know into an eye tracking lab, things like this. Can you tell us about any tools that you have found useful um, over this last year for getting valuable research when you can't be in the room with the person? One is kind of going back to that voicemail. That, I think, scales nicely to anything. I don't think good researchers should be um, kind of limited by the tools that you have access to. Some of the big-name companies have million-dollar budgets that, yes, they can throw their money at a lot of different tools and use them. I think if you are crafty, I think that is so much more effective. In terms of getting in front of people during COVID, I think you learn from a very different set of person now. COVID, in some, for some people, has completely drastically changed their lives for the worse. They're much harder. They're struggling with income or anything like that. And for some people, and I'm in the, maybe the other side, COVID hasn't necessarily changed my life too poorly. What I think about, though, from a research perspective is that Maybe now you can attract and learn from different kinds of people that are struggling, that you can get in front of them. Even a phone call, even a Google Meet or a Zoom can be powerful. I don't think the best fancy tools are going to get you into the home or help you understand what the context is for someone that you're building for. So I don't think I answered your question. Can you ask Can you ask your question again? So we, we've talked about some tools, right? So whether that's Google Voice or whatever voice mailing system you have setting up things, using things like Calendly to set up a voice chat. We're sitting here recording. You know, I've got a remote team, so to speak. I'm in Kansas. I've got my co-host Aaron is over in New York. You're up in uh, Minnesota. So this, like using a voice chat system um, is is useful. I've talked to folks who have found, uh, um, we were talking earlier about uh, Tim Broadwater uh, at the end of season three in in his book, uh, UX uh, Fuck, Marry, Kill. Um, and I, I think it was him we were talking to that he's gotten really into like using Zoom, just using Zoom to do user mm-hmm. testing. And so just thinking about like what tools have you found useful in in that regard to kind of fill some of that gap of just being able to sit next to somebody and run through a script with them. I'm going to be like, just not very exciting. I try to use the tools that I have. Better yet, I try to use as little tools as possible because then I can optimize what I use them for. What I have noticed, though, being able to do things remotely, I'm able to interact with a different portion of a population that I might not have otherwise. For example, if you don't live close to where I live and where I'm testing or I'm running research, guess what? I won't hear from you. Wow, look, now I can just do a video call. You can show up whenever you need to. That's awesome. I'm learning from you. Your voice is being heard. And we're having a meaningful participant experience. The are, other are side you saying is, that like consumers in Minneapolis might be different from consumers in Los Angeles? I think people are the same. I think they're just one shade of weird gray. So <laughs> then, then, then on the other side, what you see is maybe I'm nervous to participate. Maybe I don't want to come in and be grilled with all these types of questions. Maybe I am more introverted. Now I can do something remote and I can learn from a different set of people. I think this remote working environment opens up different people to participate. And I think being in context and some reasons, yes, it is the right thing. If you're building high-tech machinery on a supply chain uh, in a supply chain factory, you probably want to be there because I don't think people can bring 
large pieces of machinery home to work from home. I could be wrong. Last time I checked, you can't take a giant multi-million dollar sorter home. There was that guy that took the bulldozer like through his town like, a few years ago. That was that was the thing that happened. And that was me. That was Mardi Gras. It ended it badly for everybody. <laughs> the tools is the wrong way of looking at it. One idea I think about is the best basketball player isn't the one with the most shoes, right? Or the best engineer isn't the one that can use the most APIs, right? It changes the way you look at it. Can you use the tools that you have and can you optimize them in the right way? Once you start to recognize what tools are working, then you can start to mix and match with limited changes. I don't think adding more and more user usability testing tools and survey platforms leads to better research. It's when you understand what your goals are, they can understand how you want to use certain tools. If you don't need to be in the home, guess what? You don't need to be in the home. If you don't have a travel budget, if people can't get to where you need to get them, then you're not actually better served by going into the home. So... I think there's pros and cons to that. And I think regardless of like the tool set you're using or, or things like that, you know, especially if you are somebody who is on a small team or no team and you're trying to like set up the, these cases for, for research and whatnot, it can kind of be beneficial maybe to even start with setting up like maybe even research things that you know, if, if nothing else, just to start yourself off with those wins, right? get yourself and not just to build your own confidence, but to build out like confidence in you from other people, uh, so to speak, or, or at least even if you're disproving things like you're disproving them in, in ways that builds confidence in that process. Right. And whether it, and it doesn't matter what tools you use at that point, as long as those tools build confidence. I think that's a great place to start. Can you take a finding where that, can you take something that everyone at the company knows? Yes, people do blank and blank. Can you go out and validate that? Even through the process of validating people don't like XYZ function or design, you're still going to learn, have learned something. You're going to deepen that knowledge and find a whole new set of questions to kind of go ahead and tackle. I think, I think talking about confidence is is powerful because once you do one study and one, and even one stakeholder has a half a light bulb moment, what that does is that reinforces that maybe we should go ahead and do this again. I think about good research, and even at a small company, even if it's just figuring out if people like red or blue on some sort of design, what that serves is, is a benchmark for future relationships. I can build on top of that. Remember last year when we did that really quick piece of research and we learned those two things? What if we did that a little bit different this year? Can we build on top of that? Wow, we're actually building and adding to the knowledge that we have, and we're learning to refine that over time. I think confidence is very is a powerful word, and a lot of junior researchers, or if you are a team of zero or a team of one, that's a tough place to be. But at the end of the day, you will have to reach at some point. Good researchers didn't just fall out of the sky. You will have to invest, but it's having these conversations, being uncomfortable, thinking about how you're actually going to use this data, and recognizing do we want to burn one of our limited research opportunities on this interesting question, knowing that we're missing out on more valuable ones? And I, I think to sort of sum this up too, the other, I think, to me anyway, one of the good uses of research is to question the things that you know, as well as the things you don't know. Uh, because what you knew last year may no longer be true. Users change. You know, users get acclimated to a design and will begin to behave in different patterns. Um, and so the things that you learned last year or two years ago 
that truth may not fall the way you think it does anymore. And that's okay. Like, that's why I go back to this idea. Like it's, it's not a failure that your users have evolved or gotten better. <laughs> if product innovation, wow, you can react and learn with them. If they change consistently, your product should be changing and you might be attracting an entirely new set of target consumers that you can build cool stuff for. Instead of just saying they like blue, so we're going to do everything blue. I think that's how we ended up with birthday cake flavored everything. I don't know why they decided to try that in the first place, but it's terrible. Why that is a flavor. I don't know. I had their birthday cake flavored Oreos and they were awful. It was, this was like seven years ago that I had them and I still think about it and I still remember them being horrible. Personally, I think Oreos is doing too much. That's my (laughs) two cents. I don't need like a Mexican hot chocolate flavored Oreo. (laughs) Exactly. Or like a chicken teriyaki Oreo flavor. Like, I get your market research validated that somebody might buy this. I think you're doing too much. And if that's not a commercial break, I don't know what is. (laughs) This episode of the Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by Aquent and Vitamin T's Designing for Good. Designing for Good is an annual grant award program aimed at empowering designers, developers, and marketers to aid local nonprofit organizations in advancing their digital strategy. Designing for Good is accepting applications for three $10,000 grants to assist organizations in areas of diversity and inclusion, environmental action, and lifelong learning. Applying for a Designing for Good grant is as simple as going to the website, filling out a brief form, and submitting a 90-second video describing your plan for helping an organization. For more information and to submit your grant application, visit drunkenux.com slash designgrants. That's drunkenux.com slash designgrants. Varun, it took me about eight takes to get your name right, and I apologize for that, but I think it was all in good service because this was an incredibly enjoyable conversation. I hope everybody learned um, at least a little bit about UX research and got some advice on on how to go about it or how to approach it or, or how to argue for it in their organization. Um, take the, a second, though, as, as the, the payoff, because I literally have no other way to pay you. Uh, take the microphone for a, a couple minutes here and talk about what you got going on, where you're at, what you got doing, apples, bananas, food, fruit, pineapples. Yeah, no, first off, this is awesome. I really appreciate getting a chance to sit down and go deep. Some other podcasts I've been on, we keep it high level, which is important, right? It makes it more accessible, but I like being able to go deeper into the weeds and hopefully your audience, your listeners were like, hey, this is nice. We're hearing stuff that you might not see in a listicle top 10 best research methods we go to 11 that's too much that's too highbrow yeah apple and banana is uh ux brand that we're building right now we're currently working on our book we want it out later in the summer i am trying to have a full-time job Uh, i just got a puppy we just turned a year old so we're training him I have friends and family and relationship and trying to work out and trying to find meaning as the world slowly descends into chaos. But we are writing the book and then also supporting a blog at the same time. Fun fact and pro tip, don't do two things. When you have no time, don't think about supporting a blog and writing actually meaningful content, not just listicles, and actually trying to work on a meaningful page. All right, I got some bad news for you about what I'm doing. 
sorry. <laughs> I, I have pains. Wait, two. Don't don't do two things. Wait, does it get better if you do nine things? <laughs> I barely. I try to do half a thing if I can. That's where I'm trying to get to. Um, but no, the book is going well. We have a lot of feedback coming in. People are very excited about what's happening, which is fantastic. They're actually building something meaningful. If you look at our site, appleandbanana.org, you will be hard-pressed to find a single picture of my face simply because we don't want it to be about marketing and sales. What we want is for you to focus on the content and feel like anyone can do great research because fundamentally, that is what we believe. And one thing we're done with the book later this summer, really interested on identifying new needs around the research and UX community. And a lot of people have been talking with us about community, how they don't feel like they have a group of people that they can connect with. And then we're also interested in something like this, audio, video type content, where it's a little bit more engaging than just maybe something passive as reading dry text uh, on a page. Fun fact, we're not dry. You should check out our illustrations because we invest heavily into our visual design. The, so, the cute little apple and banana playing like on the swing. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, I saw them. You got to check it out. For, well, you checked it out, but maybe your listeners haven't. So um, we'll, yeah, we'll have really, links in the show notes. Don't worry. 100%. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think research at the end of the day, I think it's really creative. I think it's really fun. I think you rigor, but don't think that should be a barrier. If anything, it should teach you where you want to focus your efforts. Maybe you like qualitative versus quantitative, something like that. And I think you should get excited about going out and being wrong and having be, and being okay with that. So that's what we're trying to do at Apple Banana. I'm a big fan of being wrong. Do you do yeah. something after, though? Just being wrong is not that great. But if you're wrong and you learn from it, Oh yeah, well that's well I would say that's a given, but I guess not everybody does that. But I, yeah. I think um, you're actually you used to wear a lot of Hawaiian shirts, and I've never worn that. Hawaiian shirts. I'm not a fan of color. Um, well, come and count down the, the episodes to 888 with us on social at Twitter and Facebook.com/slash/DrunkenUX, and on Instagram.com/slash/DrunkenUX podcast. And come talk with us while you still can for free. Not saying it's going to cost money in the future, but who knows? A drunken... It's definitely not. But I mean, if it did, then you'll be glad you came and did it. Well, now when it was free at drunkenurex.com slash discord. Come talk with us. But it'll be free. Don't worry. But if it wasn't, I'm, but if I'm it not wasn't much of an asshole. in the future, if it hypothetically wasn't in the future, you'll be glad that you came and talked to us now when it's still free. Just say Okay. I'm not it's saying it will good. cost anything in the future, but if it did, you'll be glad that you came over when it was free. I, I will say, like, the field of UX research is, like, rich and growing. Um, I think as we better define our entire industry, you know, you will see even more uh, specification and, and growth in, in that area. If you're interested in being a UX researcher, while, like, it is a more narrow field, introductory salaries start out around $80,000. They top out around $121,000. Like, it's not, like, the least lucrative field you can go into um, because there is an increasing demand and increasing value in that whole area. We've talked to a lot of people over the seasons. I've enjoyed every conversation that we've had to this date. I don't say that lightly. I genuinely, you know, go through all of the, the, the folks that we have on. I've enjoyed this absolutely thoroughly, if for no other reason than because it has thoroughly and completely validated the idea that you should keep your personas close and your users closer. Aaron, goodbye. Bye.